0: Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they might open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes, truly. I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes, In the second watch, or the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and the wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. (coughs) Excuse me. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set himself over all his possessions. And if that servant says to his master, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, Everyone to whom much is given, much is required. From him who's been entrusted with much, they will demand more. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. (coughs) How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, In one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it once a shower is coming and it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there's going to be heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer. And the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word to us today. You may be seated. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Walking through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, passage by passage. And today I wanted to have you stand for that entire reading. Because it's a very long passage that we're covering today. And it covers a a couple of different parables that have different themes. So I want you to grasp it as we get into it. Let's pray. And I want to preach to you this morning and tag this sermon. Be ready. Be ready. Father, we thank you for the time that we can spend in your Word right now. We ask God that as we come into this Word, that we would recognize and believe that this is your inerrant, inspired Word powerful, authoritative for us today. I pray that you will use it to convict us and to comfort us. I pray that you will help me just simply declare your truth and that I will declare only your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm not one to quote Shakespeare. I really don't even like Shakespeare. I like his stories. I don't like reading Shakespeare. But I'm going to quote Shakespeare this morning and sound smart. In Shakespeare's Henry V, He's imagining an advisor advise King Henry. And his advisor says to Henry, you've got to deal with Scotland. And he explains why. If you don't deal with Scotland, Scotland is going to give you problems. Because every time we look away from Scotland, they're doing something. And his advisor says this to King Henry. If we don't deal with Scotland, Scotland will be playing the mouse in absence of the cat. I actually just wondered where that phrase came from. When the cat's away, the mice play. First time in English was Shakespeare. So now you know. When the cat's away... The mice play. It's a common phrase. It's a common idea. When your boss isn't looking, you get on Instagram. Right? When the parents are out of the house, the kids rebel. When the cat's away, the mouse play. Now that's true of the human spirit in many ways, isn't it? And what I want to rest in today, or just meditate on today, not really rest in, we want to rest in Christ today. I want to meditate on this idea today. And that is this, that we spiritually can apply that to our own spiritual drift. When Jesus is not before us, our hearts tend to drift when we're not around the people of Jesus, when we're not in the gathering of Jesus, we tend to look a different way. We tend to act a different way. If I were to tell you Jesus Christ is going to be with you in the flesh today, you would have come with a little different kind of fervor. If I were to say He was going to spend uh, uh, his, your whole week with you this week at work, you would work with a little different kind of fervor. However, the other saying is also true, and that is this, out of sight, help me out church, come on, I need your help today. Out of sight, out of mind, or when the cat's away, the mice play. The reality is that we don't see physically with our eyes, we don't see Jesus And the world around us then acts like however they want to act because Jesus is not present. Now I think if some of, some of you are honest today, some of you would say, I'm tired of trying to do what's right. I'm tired of trying to do what's right all the time and seeing other people do what's wrong and they actually seem to do better in life than me. The wicked seem to prosper, and I'm tired of it. Some of you might say, I'm tired of of working honestly, and I see others cheating, and they end up doing better in life. Some of you know some folks who are two-faced, and you know both of their faces. And you're tired of the fact... that everybody else only sees one side of them, and they seem to get praised, and you seem to get forgotten. And we ask ourselves, will they ever be held accountable? Will there ever be a reckoning? Will justice ever come? In church, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we would have to say, that same drift is in my own soul. I often am two-faced. I often am the cheat. I often am the one who gets away with what I want to get away with. I do what I want to do. And I wonder, am I ready? Am I prepared for Jesus? The whole point of this text that I read is to get us to focus on the end. To get us to focus on something that is to come. In other words, if we don't understand how this world is going to end, if we don't understand where everything is eventually going, all we have left is the now. And we will live in the now however we feel like living with no thought of what is to come. The point of this text is to get us to focus on the return of Jesus Christ. The point of this text is to get us to ask ourselves a question, and that is this, am I ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Am I prepared for the return of Jesus Christ? In verse 54, you might have noticed Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. It's because they know how to prepare for the weather. But they're not preparing themselves for eternity. He says, "You see the cloud rise in the west and you know that that means rain. You know how to prepare. You see a scorching wind coming, you know that that brings heat, and you know how to prepare for the heat. But you don't even recognize the signs of the coming of Christ, the first coming." They don't realize that there is a greater preparation that must take place, and that is the preparation of their souls. And so while they're busy buying up all the toilet paper and and water at Save-A-Lot to get ready for the next big storm, he's saying, you hypocrite, you are not prepared for eternity. We must be prepared. That's the point. In verse 35. We begin with two commands. Jesus says, stay dressed for action. In the ancient world in the Middle East, they had these big flowing robes and they looked cool, but they weren't good for running in. They weren't good for fighting in. So they were to gird their loins. They were to take the robe and tuck it into their belt so that way they would be ready for action. What Jesus is saying is this, is sleep with your war clothes on. Sleep with your shoes on. Be ready for action. The next command, he says, is to keep your lamps burning. Sleep with the lights on. Sleep with one eye open if you would. I've always wanted to be able to do that, by the way. Like, I've always admired the guy in the movie who's able to, like, be in a deep sleep and he grabs his sword and split two seconds and is ready for battle. Sleeping with one eye open. He's saying, as you go about your day, as you go about your work, keep one eye on your work and keep one eye on the sky. Be prepared. Be ready. And then he gives, in order to make his point, he gives a parable in verse 30, 37. He gives a parable of a master who's gone away at a wedding feast. And the master comes home, and, and his servants are prepared. And by the way, this is late at night. They're ready to serve him as he comes home. His servants open the door. He says, Be like these servants, who, even though the master's gone, they are ready to meet him. How blessed, he says, in verse 37, are those servants. He goes on to verse 38. And he emphasizes that. He said, Even if the master comes in the second watch, which is uh, midnight, or even if he comes in the third watch, which is early morning, be ready. He's saying, blessed are these servants who stay up all night long ready, prepared for the return of the Master. What's the point? The point is this. Number one, Jesus is returning. Everybody say, He's coming again. He's He's returning This is a massive truth that we so often forget or neglect, that Jesus is coming back to earth in his physical body. It is so clear in Scripture that we ask members who join our church to sign a statement of faith, and one of the lines in that statement of faith has to do with the fact that Jesus is coming again. I'll read it to you. It says, we believe in the blessed hope, the personal, imminent, that means He could come at any moment, imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for His redeemed ones. I wonder if you believe that Jesus Christ is indeed coming again. If Jesus is not coming again, then all we have is what you see. But if Jesus is coming again, then what you see is not all we have. He's not coming in the way that he did the first time, but he's coming back as a warrior. He's not coming as a sacrificial servant, but he's coming as a conqueror. The point is that Jesus is returning. And when He comes again, He will come to forever judge the wicked. He will remake the earth in His own fashion. I don't know how He's going to do it. And I'm not going to speculate. I just know He's going to do it. And we who are the redeemed will live together with Him forever. Amen? Amen. I'll say my own amen if you don't shout amen for me. How's that? All right? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Y'all don't get excited about the fact that Jesus is coming again. All right, we'll talk about something you get excited about. How about the ravens? Amen. Or we could talk about the second coming. Help me. Secondly, the timing of his return is unknown. That's what we see in the text. We don't know when He's going to come back. The Master could come in the first watch, second watch, or the third watch. Nobody knows. When you're uh, on Facebook and you see somebody who is telling you when Jesus is going to come back, please don't like that post. Please don't like that meme. Just keep on moving. People have been trying to predict when Jesus is coming back probably as long as He's been gone. And they're always wrong. They're always wrong. Listen, we make... Trivial things. The main thing, and in doing so, we make the main thing trivial. Like we want to. Talk, whenever I talk to people about Jesus coming, they just want to talk about signs of the times and read the New York Times. And I'm thinking, you know, seeing this happen in the Middle East and this, this, and this, and I'm just I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't have all the details. We can take some theological stabs at it. I think it's good to debate these things. I think it's good to have a position on eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end times. I think it's good to think through uh, uh, all of those things. I'm not knocking it. But what I'm saying is we have a tendency to make trivial things the main thing and miss the main thing. Living, here's, here's what I'm saying, living unprepared for his second coming while we're trying to figure out when he's coming back. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And this is the crazy thing, is when we make trivial things the main thing, something as, as life transformative as the fact that Jesus is going to come back, we just take that for granted, and hard, it doesn't even affect us. Church, sit so with the fact, the main thing, Jesus is coming again, and he can come any moment. I want everybody to hear this in this room. Are you prepared for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for Jesus to return? This is, the, this is the third point that I want to make right now, and that is that we've got to be ready for His return. We've got to be dressed. We've got to keep the lamp on. We've got to keep the light shining. Main idea... Of this parable is simply this it will be a good idea for you to be doing the master's will when the master comes back that's not a bad idea Peter Jesus follower in the text he asks this question who's this for who's this parable for is this for us the disciples or is this for everybody including people that don't follow Jesus. Now Jesus in his own way he answers a parable with another parable. And it gets a little confusing as you read it, but I think what Jesus is saying is simply this is Peter, it's for everybody. Anybody, listen, anybody who has encountered Jesus is responsible to be prepared for his return. That's what he that's where he goes next. There are four kinds of people that Jesus shows us in the next parable. First, some, he says, are blessed. So in verse 43, we see those that are doing the master's will are blessed. Verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Again, main point emphasized. It's not a bad idea to be doing the master's will when the master returns. And so there's this first group of people who are doing Christ's will when Christ returns and they are called blessed. In Going back to the first parable in verse 37, the master is so delighted at his servants obeying him. In verse 37 he says he's going to dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. This is, this is kind of huge in ancient Palestine. The master is so happy at these blessed ones that he's going to put out a big table and get on the grill and start flipping some steak and some veggie burgers for the rest of you. And he, listen, is going to serve them. This connects directly with Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, which says all... Who knock, or all, all, I'm sorry, who open the door, he will serve them. He will eat with them. He will come in and dine with them. This is a picture of heaven that is to come. Jesus is, has a meal that is prepared for his people. How beautiful that picture is. But there's a second group of people. There are the blessed, but this is also, he says, for another group of people, and they are the indignant ones. I don't even know what indignant means. I just needed an I to fit with my, the rest of my points here. No, it means rebellious. They are the rebellious ones. I can illustrate it for you, though. I'm going to put my kids out there again, all right? I asked, I asked them if this is okay. At least I asked Jaden, is this okay? She said, that's fine. When Eden was about two years old, we were trying to get her to sleep in a little toddler bed outside of the crib. And those of you who have kids, you know that that's easier said than done. Because what do those little two-year-olds do when they're sleeping in their little toddler beds? They don't want to stay in the bed. So we would put Eden to bed, close the door, and five seconds later, Eden's coming out the door. We pick her up, put her back in bed, close the door. Here she comes, little Eden, out the door. We did this over and over every night. It finally, one night, it was so bad. Like she just kept coming out and the hour was getting later and later. And we would put her in and she shared her room with Jaden. We would put her back to bed and Jaden would be sitting there so frustrated. She was as frustrated as we were, just trying to get some sleep. And she would say, I'm so tired. Can you please make Eden go to sleep? And I would be like, Eden, look at your sister Jaden. Do you see how good she is? Can't you be like her? Look how she's just laying in her bed. Put her back. But then I put my ear to the door. So I put her back in bed. I closed the door and I listened. And you know what I heard? I heard Jaden's voice. I heard Jaden say, Eden, get up, go outside. Go out the door. Oh. Listen, when the cat's away, the mice play. You know these kids when you were growing up, they were so good around adults, but then they'd get around you and they were like this little wicked demon. You know those kids? Well, Jaden, you know, when you're four years old, In retrospect, it's kind of funny and kind of cute. But when we grow up and we act this way before God, it's not very cute, is it? It's not very innocent, is it? When we become two-faced before God, when we want to serve Jesus if He were in our presence... We certainly want to be ready for Him if He returns, but while He's gone, we act a fool. We live according to our own desires. We live according to our own feelings. It's not very cute. This is the second group of people that he addresses who I'm calling the indignant or the rebellious. The rebellious ones. In verse 45, look at the text with me. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, this is the servant, listen, this is the servant who rebels against the Lord. They know what's right. They know what they're supposed to do. They've encountered Jesus but they abandon Christ. Now listen, this is also important. The way that you treat others is a large part of how you prepare for Jesus. Notice the example He uses is someone who's taking advantage of others. They're being mean. They're harming other people that are under their care. My point is this, is when we think about ourselves being ready for Jesus, this isn't to abandon the things of the world. This actually forms how we look at the things of the world. This isn't to abandon the people in our life, but rather uh, this, this changes the way that we treat the people in our life. Does that make sense? Meaning, if Jesus was coming back, and if He were to come back and you were to have no shame, I wonder... What that would mean about your relationships with each other as a church, how much you want to be together. I wonder if there would be some relationships repaired if we were to prepare for Jesus' return. I wonder what this would mean about our relationships within our families if Jesus were to return. Now, the next verse here is a verse of wrath, and this is sort of like rated M, it's ugly. In verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. You thought the Bible was PG. Now, some people say, I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. Listen, a friend who just tries to make you comfortable but doesn't actually address your doom is not really a friend. On on the contrary, a doctor who makes you uncomfortable but addresses the real problem in your body, well, that doctor is your friend. Just because something is uncomfortable for us it doesn't mean that it's bad. Listen, we need to understand the warnings of Scripture. And my sermon is in some ways framed by a warning today. The warnings of Scripture are not an act of hatred towards us. The warnings are not mean. As a matter of fact, what would be mean is for God not to warn us and to just come back and enact wrath. Now He could do that. I shouldn't even say that would be mean. God would be perfectly just to do that. He would be right to do that. But how much more loving and gracious we see Him displayed to be as He warns us of what it will look like if we are not prepared. If we are in this category of the rebellious. There's a third category. And that would be this. Some are indifferent. So some are blessed some are rebellious, and some are just indifferent. Martin Luther King famously once said that what hurts is not the words of your enemies, but the silence of your friends. Meaning indifference. I recently read, as it relates to slavery in, America, in the United States, that the reason slavery lasted so long in the States was not because of the slave owners themselves, but because of the indifference of all of the other white citizens of America. Indifference, meaning you've been confronted with what's right and you're just indifferent. You've been confronted with the will of God and you're just indifferent, meaning I might not be a rebel in that sense. I might not be doing these things that are so bad per se but rather I'm just indifferent in verse 47 we see that the, that these folks who are indifferent are also held accountable these are the kind of people who see injustice and they just don't care These are the kind of people who see people taken advantage of and they just remain indifferent. Oh, they might not be themselves involved in, you know, gross sexual immorality, but they are just indifferent about sexual immorality in others. You know Romans 1 says that those who participate in sin are held accountable And those who condone those who participate in sin are also held accountable. This is the problem of indifference. There's a third category here, or a fourth category, and that's those who are ignorant. Everybody say, You're ignorant. That's not quite what I mean. Usually we use the word ignorant as like a way of saying what does that even mean today? It's like you're stupid. You're, you're an idiot. You're acting like a fool. Well, I mean ignorant truly in the sense of they're, they're ignorant, which actually means they don't know. There's this fourth category of people that is also responsible. And Jesus says that, that they, too, are held accountable, not to the severity of the previous categories, but those, the one who did not know in verse 48 and did what deserve a beating, will receive a light beating. He still, even though he doesn't know the will of God, this fourth category is still responsible for whether or not they are ready for the return of Jesus. Jesus sums it all up in verse 48. To whom much is given, much is required. If you've been given knowledge, you have a lot that's required of you. If you've grown up in church, God has a lot that He's requiring of you. He's entrusted you with a lot of information in this world. What are you going to do with it? Growing up in the 90s, I'll never forget the NBC uh, uh, public service announcements called The More You Know. Remember those? Like a 30-second clip of some celebrity talking about some social issue, and then a little rainbow. The more you know. That's nice, and that's good. We could apply that here, and God is essentially saying this, the more you know, the more you're responsible for. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. The more you know, the more I expect you to be ready when He returns. I wonder, church, if you are ready. Or I wonder if you would fall into this category of the rebellious. I wonder if you'd fall into this category of the indifferent. I wonder if you might fall into this category of the ignorant. Or if you would fall into the category of the blessed. What does it look like to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Our goal is to be able to see Jesus come back and to uh, embrace Him without shame. What might that look like? Well, I want to go on in this text before we close, if you'll allow me. Because Jesus makes a drastic turn from his second coming to the first coming. He's basically saying this, and I need to fix my mic here. Hang on one second. He's basically saying this, if you're going to be ready for my second coming, you must understand the first coming. He immediately turns to his moment, the day that he's living in. And I want to categorize these under three different headings. Those who are ready, number one, know that Jesus is their substitute. Those who are ready, number two, know that Jesus is supreme. And those who are ready, number three, know that Jesus is Savior. Let me hit each one of those very briefly first those who already know that Jesus is their substitute. Like the testimony of a a niece years ago after a tornado ripped through Ohio. This niece said that she was on this ball field and they saw the tornado coming and her uncle pushed her into a ditch and laid on top of her. And by the time the tornado had left, she looked up and her uncle was gone. Her uncle was, you could say, the substitute for the storm that was coming at her. Her uncle gave his life so that she might live. Listen, as this master is returning, there is punishment for those who have not obeyed him. Who can stand on that day? Who can say, oh, I know that I'm the blessed. I know that I'm among the faithful. Now what we need is a substitute. This is where Jesus turns. Jesus says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth. I would that it would already be kindled. I came, or I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's Jesus saying? He's saying I've come to bring judgment, but not to inflict judgment, but to receive judgment. He says, I've come now, this is Jesus 2,000 years ago, to be baptized. But this isn't the baptism of John. This isn't baptism under water. This is the baptism of judgment. Much more like the way the world was baptized during the days of Noah with the flood. Jesus has come to be baptized with judgment. And he says... How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Don't you realize that this Master who's coming is a Master who hung on the cross and was baptized in the judgment that you and I deserve? He's not some uh, uh, enshrined... uh, uh, God, that we turn into an idol where He's happy in a fat belly and eating. No, He is a, a God whose arms were stretched on the cross and He uttered out, He groaned, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was baptized in judgment as our substitute. We're going to come back to that. But very briefly, let's move on. In the next couple of verses, 51 through 53, we just see these divisions in families. You might have noticed that earlier when I read. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Son against mother. uh, uh, Father against son. Mother against... uh, What's he saying? What he's saying is this. There are going to be people who reject you in this world because of me. And I've got to be more important than the group. You've got to be more loyal to me than anybody else on this planet, planet. A.K.A. Jesus is supreme. And thirdly, they know that Jesus is Savior. In verses 57 through 59, we end this text on a very strange note. This note of debt. He's basically saying this. Imagine that you owe me $1,000. You stole $1,000 out of my piggy bank. Jesus is saying, you better get that worked out ahead of time. Because if you don't pay off your $1,000 that you owe Joel, Joel is going to drag you to the magistrate. The magistrate is going to take you to the judge. The judge is going to turn you over to the officer. And the officer is going to lock you up in prison and you're going to sit there until you've paid off your debt. What's he saying by that? Well, he's alluding to something so much more than just fiscal matters on this earth. The wages of sin is what? Death. The payment for our sin is death. Jesus is saying this. In order for us to be ready, we must have a debt that is paid off. We must have a clear and clean slate before God. Now, if you... Steal a thousand dollars from me, how much do you owe me? Thousand dollars, plus damage maybe. Like plus some interest. But if we've sinned against an infinitely holy God, an eternal God, that's who we've wronged. Then don't you understand that your debt before God is an infinite and eternal Debt. The question is this, how can we ever have our debts paid off so that we might be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Because if you're honest and if you're like me, what you're going to feel like is in your flesh, your debt is increasingly getting larger, not smaller. Like, How many times can you hear the Word of God and not be affected by it? How many weeks can we go by where we forget to open His Word? Like if you're looking at our righteousness and you're going to say, I'm accepted by God when He returns because of my righteousness, I just don't think we're going to do very well. Our debt is getting bigger, not smaller. So how, church, might we be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? I saw this meme the other day. You know, memes are such a great way to get an education. You could get like a PhD from memes these days. I saw a meme the other day, and it said this. It said, when people bring up your past, tell them Jesus dropped the charges. When, When people bring up your past, tell them Jesus dropped your charges. And I thought, man, that's good. And I liked it. But then I actually, then I had a second thought, and I thought, wait a second. What does it take to drop charges? So I Googled it. Like, I take memes really seriously. (laughs) I Googled it. I Googled. How do you get criminal charges dropped? Well, Google told me charges are dropped because of insufficient evidence. Charges are dropped because there's new evidence that's brought forward. Charges can be dropped because evidence seems inadmissible. And charges are dropped because, that there, because there's evidence that the defendant's rights have been violated. And then I thought to myself, this is problematic for me as it relates to my standing before this holy judge when he returns. Because I don't have insufficient evidence against me, I have plenty of evidence. It is sufficient. I can't bring forward any new evidence of my innocence because I don't have any. Because no amount of good that I can currently do would ever take away my sin. All evidence would be admissible before God because God won't miss anything. He sees all. And my rights have certainly not been violated because God has every right to judge me and to look at my evidence. And so I went back to this meme and I thought about getting into a theological discussion and I thought, nah, And I'm going to encourage you to say, nah, a whole lot more on Facebook, all right? Just keep it moving. But I thought thought the meme, it, it it says something, and I get it. It says something, but it's insufficient. Jesus didn't drop the charges against me because the charges against me were true and were right and could never in all of eternity be dropped. Instead, church, what we must understand is that Jesus paid for the charges that were against me. He took that punishment that I deserved on the cross. And He paid all of my debts. An infinite, eternal amount of punishment that I deserve was absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross when the wrath of God baptized Him that day. And He took it all for me. I'm so glad that Jesus paid my debt. I'm so glad that I hear my Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me Thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby Thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save my lips, shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Church, I wonder if there's anybody here who is glad that Jesus paid it all. He paid your debts. I wonder if there's anybody here who will celebrate it, the fact that Jesus three days later rose from the dead which shows us that God accepted His payment on your behalf. And how wonderful it is that this Savior who paid it all is going to come again. We don't wait with fear and trembling. We don't wait wondering whether or not He is going to accept us. We are ready in Him. We are prepared in Him. And so we eagerly await His second coming Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And on that day, all tears will be wiped away. And we who are blood-bought citizens of God's kingdom will forever be with God. And God will forever ever be with us. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this simple truth. Jesus paid it all. And so therefore, God, we can stand before You and be accepted. We eagerly await the second coming of Jesus. I pray that we would prepare ourselves through daily, hourly, minute by minute, and second by second, placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed on Calvary. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.